The superpower symmetries may be of interest to policy wonks and history buffs and various skeptics, but they tell us nothing that would be useful in our daily lives. It is the asymmetries, the differences between the two superpowers that I believe to be the most instructive. When the Soviet system went away, many people lost their jobs, everyone lost their savings, wages and pensions were held back for months, their value was wiped out by hyperinflation, there were shortages of food, gasoline, medicine, consumer goods, there was a large increase in crime and violence, and yet Russian society did not collapse. Somehow the Russians found ways to muddle through. How was that possible? It turns out that many aspects of the Soviet system were paradoxically resilient in the face of system-wide collapse. Many institutions continued to function, and the living arrangement was such that people did not lose access to food, shelter, or transportation, and could survive even without an income. The Soviet economic system failed to thrive, and the communist experiment at constructing a worker's paradise on earth was, in the end, a failure. But as a side effect, it inadvertently achieved a high level of collapse preparedness. In comparison, the American system could produce significantly better results for a time, but at the cost of creating and perpetuating a living arrangement that is very fragile and not at all capable of holding together through the inevitable crash. Even after the Soviet economy evaporated and the government largely shut down, Russians still had plenty for them to work with. And so there is a wealth of useful information and insight that we can extract from the Russian experience, which we can, we can then turn around and put to good use in helping us improvise a new living arrangement here in the United States, one that is more likely to be survivable. The mid-1990s did not seem to me as the right time to voice such ideas. The United States was celebrating its so-called Cold War, War victory, getting over its Vietnam syndrome by bombing Iraq back to the Stone Age, and the foreign policy wonks coined the term hyperpower and were jabbering on about full-spectrum dominance. All sorts of silly things were happening. Professor Fukuyama told us that history had ended, and so we were building a brave new world where the Chinese made things out of plastic for us. The Indians provided customer support when these Chinese made things broke. And we paid for it all just by flipping houses, pretending that they were worth a lot of money, whereas they're really just useless bits of ticky-tacky. Alan Greenspan chided us about irrational exuberance while consistently low-balling interest rates. It was the Goldilocks economy, not too hot, not too cold, remember that? And now it turns out that it was actually more of a Tinker Bell economy, because the last five or so years of economic growth was more or less a hallucination based on various debt pyramids, the whole house of cards, as President Bush once referred to it during one of his lucid moments. <laughs> and now we can look back on all of that with a funny, queasy feeling, or we can look forward and feel nothing but vertigo. 
While all of these silly things were going on, I thought it best to keep my comparative theory of super, superpower collapse to myself. During that time, I was watching the action in the oil industry because I understood that oil imports are the Achilles heel of the U.S. economy. In the mid-1990s, all, the all-time peak in global oil production was scheduled for the turn of the century, but then a lot of things happened that delayed it by at least half a decade. Perhaps you've noticed this too. There is a certain refrain here. People who try to predict big historical shifts always turn, to be, turn out to be off by about half a decade. Unsuccessful predictions, on the other hand, are always spot on as far as timing. The world as we know it failed to end precisely at midnight on January 1st, year 2000. <laughs> Perhaps there is a physical principle involved. Information spreads at the speed of light, while ignorance is instantaneous at all points in the known universe. <laughs> so please make a mental note. Whenever it seems to you that I'm making a specific prediction as to when I think something is likely to happen, just silently add plus or minus half a decade. In any case, about half a decade ago, I finally thought that the time was ripe, and as it turned out, I wasn't too far off. In June of 2005, I published an article on the subject titled Post-Soviet Lessons for a Post-American Century, which was quite popular even to the extent that I got paid for it. <laughs> it is available at various places on the Internet. A little while later, I formalized my thinking somewhat into the collapse gap concept, which I presented at a conference in Manhattan in April of 2006. The slideshow from that presentation, titled Closing the Collapse Gap, was posted on the Internet and has been downloaded a few million times since then. Then in January of 2008, when it became apparent to me that financial collapse was well underway and that other stages of collapse were to follow, I published a short article titled The Five Stages of Collapse, which I later expanded into a talk I gave at a conference in Michigan in October of 2008. Finally, at the end of 2008, I announced on my blog that I'm getting out of the prognosticating business. I made enough predictions, and they all seem to be very well on track, give or take half a decade. Please remember that. Um, collapse is well underway, and now I'm just an observer. But this talk is about something else, something other than making dire predictions and then acting all smug when they come true. <laughs> you see, there's nothing more useless than predictions once they have come true. It's like looking at last year's amazingly successful stock picks. <laughs> what are you going to do about them this year? What we need are examples of things that, that have been shown to work in the strange, unfamiliar post-collapse environment that we're all likely to have to confront. Stuart Brand proposed the title for the talk, Social Collapse Best Practices, and I thought it was an excellent idea. Although the term best practices has been diluted over time to mean uh, little more than good ideas, initially it stood for the process of um, abstracting useful techniques from examples of what has worked in the past and applying them to new situations in order to control risk, uh, to increase the chances of securing a positive outcome. 
It's a way of skipping a lot of trial and error and deliberation and experimentation and to just go with what works. In organizations, especially large organizations, best practices also offer a good way to avoid painful episodes of watching colleagues trying to think out of the box <laughs> whenever they're confronted with a new problem. Um, if your colleagues were any good at thinking outside the box, they probably wouldn't feel so compelled their entire working lives sitting in a box, <laughs> keeping an office chair warm. If they were any good at thinking outside the box, they would have by now thought of a way to escape from that box. <laughs> so perhaps what would make them feel happy and productive again is if someone came along and gave them a different box in which, in which to think, you know, a box better suited to the post-collapse environment. Here's a key insight. You might think that when collapse happens, nothing works. That's just not the case. The old ways of doing things don't work anymore. The old assumptions are all invalidated. Conven conventional goals and measures of success become irrelevant. But a different set of goals, techniques, and measures of success can be brought to bear immediately. And the sooner, the better. But enough generalities. Let's go through some specifics. We'll start with some generalities. And you'll, as you'll see, it will all become very, very specific rather quickly. Here's another key insight. There are very few things that are positives or negatives per se. Just about everything is a matter of context. Now, it just so happens that most things that are positives prior to collapse turn out to be negatives once collapse occurs, and vice versa. For instance, prior to collapse, having high inventory in a business is bad because the, business has, the businesses have to store it and finance it uh, so they, they try to have just-in-time inventory. After collapse, high inventory turns out to be very useful because they can barter it for the things they need, and they can't easily get more because they don't have any credit. Prior to collapse, it's good for a business to have the right level of staffing and an efficient organization. After collapse, what you want is a gigantic sluggish bureaucracy that can't unwind operations or lay people off fast enough through sheer bureaucratic foot dragging. 